Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. Hi, I'm Sarah Corbett, and I'm chatting to Michael Backman today because I heard a rumour that you are writing something at the moment, Michael. Ah, Sarah, it's more than a rumour. (laughs) (laughs) I'd really like it if you could share with us just some little insights into what you're up to and what we could expect from you in the future. Right. Um, Well, um, yes, uh, other than running the gallery and producing a monthly catalogue, Constantly, obviously every month. Um, uh, in my spare time, I am uh, writing what actually will be my ninth book. Uh, in the past, the books I've written have concentrated more on economics and politics and, and so on. The, the most recent one, in fact, was a political biography of a Malaysian politician. But this new one is uh, looking at Malay gold and silver from perhaps the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. And um, I'm fascinated by Malay people because of their associations in the past with trade and commerce in Southeast Asia and and across uh, the world, even to Africa and and up to China and and so on. Um, And uh, in terms of what we mean by the Malay people, of course, there there are the Malaysians uh, in the Malay Peninsula who are of Malay descent. That that's one group of, of Malays, and then in the coastal areas of Sumatra, uh, there are many Malay people there as well. Also, pockets in Borneo, and obviously in Singapore and southern Thailand. So, what I'm looking at is the the silver and the gold that these people were using, um, uh, as I said, in the 18th, 19th uh, centuries, and so on. What fascinates me uh, uh, about this group is that they were so important in the past with, in, in trade and commerce, and then became less important, unfortunately, with the advent of colonization by both the Dutch and the English. And that was quite a structural change in the local economy and, and so on, and, and tended to disenfranchise uh, the local rulers from their trade routes, as the VOC, which is the Dutch, the, the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, tried to squeeze out the Malays and, and uh, replace uh, the, the, uh, their trading networks with their own trading networks. Huge shift for those trading uh, people yeah. at that point in history then. Uh, very, very big. And often it's a point that's not acknowledged in collections today and by collectors. And, and what's interested me from the perspective of being based in London and, and therefore in Europe, uh, where I have had access to um, possibly earlier Malay gold and silver that, that's come out, uh, probably came out maybe a hundred years ago. It's very different to what I'm finding compared to what uh, is found today in Malaysia and Indonesia. And the this field tends to have been dominated by collectors, particularly a, a small group of probably wealthy collectors, uh, who have gone into the field, or at least had runners or dealers who, who could find things for them in Indonesia and Malaysia today. And what I'm finding is that the quality and, and uh, the, the scope of these collections is very different to what I'm finding in Europe. And what, I, what I'm finding, I think, is a snapshot of probably 100 or 200 years ago of what was available because it was taken uh, back, you know, acquired, purchased uh, from Southeast Asia then, brought back then, and very different to in terms of um, the items, the motives, and also the ethnic groups. So 
for example, um, there are several uh, big collections of Indonesian gold and Indonesian silver. Uh, now, uh, books have been published on these collections and, and uh, papers and, and uh, so on. And I, I feel that they're highly distorted uh, according to uh, the ethnic groups that the Dutch cultivated and subsidised and, and sort of built up. The Minangkabau, for example, in Sumatra, I contend in my own research, were relatively unimportant in, say, the 18th century. But when the Dutch came, uh, the, the Dutch almost selected them as like a client group in Sumatra, helped them with some battles and, uh, and, and uh, helped their local economy. And then suddenly this um, saw them become wealthier, more important, more connected to the outside world, so that their items, their material culture became more prominent for collectors, more accessible. And this has tended to, to, to distort collections today, where Minangkabau stuff is, is I think, overrepresented compared with Malay items. So previous to the colonial influences, there wouldn't have been such prevalence of the Minangkabau people no. or their arts but because they had that support it's what people are aware of or it's something that is given as a name tag to things that didn't necessarily come from that cultural group? Uh, no, no, I think it did. Uh, so, so things today which are classes Minangkabau, I, I am going to contend in my writing uh, that these items are much newer that they were produced, say, in the last hundred years and, and probably even later. And they were produced because, essentially, um, even towards the end of the 19th century, the Dutch were coming to Indonesia and, and so on uh, uh, as, as tourists and were wanting tourist items. And this and, was what was showcased to uh, those yeah, visitors. That's right. The Minangkabau, uh, as a culture, was being showcased because their housing was, was quite unique and quite interesting. And also, the Dutch actually had a program of getting rid of less interesting Minangkabau housing and subsidising and promoting the housing that was more dramatic, where they had the big sort of spires on the roofs and, 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 uh, and the like. And certain villages were showcased as ideal picture postcard type villages uh, for, for people to go and visit. So uh, they became, uh, one, uh, Kota Gadang in Sumatra was very much on the tourist circuit by around 1860, 1870. And, um, and then, of course, these people started to produce souvenirs. They did all sorts of filigree work and, and uh, mass-produced their own jewellery, which was all very gold and glitzy, and, and, but the quality isn't very good. So collections today tend to be distorted in favour of, of the Manangkabau um, because they simply were pushed by the Dutch and became more accessible. They got richer as well because the Dutch kind of looked after them. In the past, this was a place that wasn't particularly wealthy, and we know that because wave after wave of uh, immigrants was produced. There were Minangkabau migrants almost economically fleeing Sumatra to go and settle in Negra Sambalan area in, in the Malay Peninsula and so on. A rich society does not produce economic migrants no. like that. So that alone is proof that this group was not particularly wealthy. The wealthy people at that time or, and prior to that in Sumatra were the Malays, but they are the ones who were squeezed out uh, by, say, the mid-19th uh, century by both the Dutch and the British. Because they're more of a threat to the trade routes. They certainly were. Or they at the time they, yeah. they had control of those trade routes. That's right. And so what I'm finding are um, instances of 
curious items of Malay gold and silver which have ended up in Europe but have since been classed as possibly Indian or something else. So I'm trying to identify these pieces and reattribute uh, the, uh, them to, to Malay culture and that's what I intend to sort of showcase in this book that I'm working on and to show that um, uh, you know Malay culture was so much more vibrant. We know already that the Malays were in charge of of trading networks and so on, and they were really important to the point that Malay, Malay, the Malay language became like the lingua franca of, of trade and of the region. But where are the items that went along with that? that? All of that means you were rich. So where are the accoutrements of wealth? They would certainly have existed. Yeah, they, they certainly did exist and they were dissipated. And they were dissipated by colonisation and then replaced by other groups which, which the colonisers preferred. So we've really been left with a very narrow view of the material culture of the region, which isn't necessarily accurate yes. to the history of the people there before these colonial recordings and changes to who had the space and the support to create. That's exactly right, and I think we need to really redress this because uh, yeah, as, as I say, collections have been distorted. Collectors uh, today uh, have distorted um, uh, by virtue of their collecting. Um, uh, they've pushed together collections of what they can access today, but that is not the totality of all that was being produced. So um, it's an accessibility issue, uh, and it's um, when it should have been more of an intellectual and a historical issue. Well, we know from every region that we look at, and Indonesia is huge, yes. and Malaysia's, you know, the Malay people in Indonesia and Malaysian Palencia, it's a large space. You would not expect just one style of adornment to exist yes, that, for that's all right. of those people. So where are these gaps? What has been lost? That's um, quite an undertaking, Michael, to try to... Um, repopulate yes. the history books with the things from there. So where have you found obstacles to finding these facts that put this back together? Yeah. Um, what, uh, yes, <laughs> I've, I've spent probably the last six months endlessly reading, endlessly going through um, early accounts of, of uh, when explorers and travellers arrived and met a local sultan and just sort of combing through how they described what they saw. If they went to a wedding or to an installation uh, ceremony for, for a Raja or a king or a sultan, um, we would call them a coronation, what did they see? And um, one of the most frustrating things is that what I want is detail. And uh, very rarely do you get the detail that I'm looking for. So uh, there'll be like an early published account maybe in the 18th century of someone seeing a, a procession in the streets and they'll say, oh, the, the court retainers were, were beautifully attired and were carrying wonderful boxes. What I need them to say is, what were those boxes made of? And were they impressed with jewels? What were they for? And, and, uh, and the like. So, but eventually you, you find a little scrap here and a little scrap here. And, and, uh, and I'm going through hundreds and hundreds of journal articles that have been published in the last hundred years and, and piecing it all together. I'm looking at, at, at books that were published in the 18th century when people first came to Sumatra and, and were very closely uh, uh, traveling around and looking at things. And some of them have been, you know, every so often you come across a gold mine where someone really knew what he was talking about. And, and then you have to really carefully 
read it. One of these accounts, you know, has has been looked at, but there's been a fundamental misreading of it, and um, and I've actually seen uh, the same error reproduced over and over and over in book that's been published and published. This constant error uh, about a particular type of manufacturing in goldware that was going on at, the, on the, that, that time. But if you go back to the original book as it was published in the 1790s and reread it, you can see that the, um, author after author has made the same mistake. And copied one another. And copied one another without going back to the original source. So that's a, source. that's a whole new area that I'm having to sort of re so recalibrate. An area that you've discovered something that you didn't expect. There's all these publications that have had this same line. Yes. And by researching very, very carefully, you didn't expect to find that there was this other source that was perhaps misinterpreted or less accurately recorded. Hmm. What other things have you discovered that you really didn't expect on this journey of writing? Um, I think, again, it's this whole thing of missing objects and... Uh, the museum collections today, uh, particularly when it comes to Malay silver, that um, they have Malay silver, but I'm finding increasingly that the silver was all collected, uh, say around 1906, 1907, up to maybe 1910. And that has led to the same sorts of distortions that what we find today if people are trying to build up a collection now by going across Indonesia looking for things. So back around 1910 when colonial authorities thought, gosh, we should have some museums to reflect the cultures that we've now um, colonised, uh, I'm finding that uh, these, these were the things which have been published ever since as representative of, of say, Malay gold and Malay silver. But the, I, I think at the time the sources that they were getting these from, particularly in the Malay Peninsula, were like say agricultural markets and, and British type exhibitions and so on. So very often these things were being made to be exhibited, so they weren't collected in the field. Um, and I have quite a few things myself which I've often wondered, gosh, they're so pristine, you know, they've never been used, the beetle nut sets and beetle nut boxes and so and on. And you'd expect wear on objects that were wear. culturally significant. Yeah, indeed. And, and, so, and then you've got to marry this up with sumptuary laws. Um, until quite late in the piece, there were laws in Malay sultanates that said that only the Malay sultans and their immediate family could have gold and silver items suddenly we have a whole lot of these items and you sort of think, well, how can this be? When in fact only a very small group of people were ever permitted to have these. And now it turns out that we can find quite a few of these. So how does that marry up? And it marries up because the sumptuary laws were, um, were, were abolished by the British and the Dutch. Um, and then uh, that allowed uh, the, the, the silversmiths who had been working for the courts to suddenly make things for British and Dutch visitors and administrators. So it turns out that probably a lot of what are now uh, the items that are now cast as Malay, which are in Malay uh, or in, in museums, uh, both here in London, in the V&A and in the British Museum, but also in Singapore, in the Asian Civilizations Museum. These were acquired around that time and were probably made... Um, uh, to be acquired. To be acquired rather than to be used uh, in the more proper fashion. Yeah, pieces that were never actually worn in their original no. and symbolic fashion so by the people that they were created yeah, for. Yeah, they're, they're probably, they're, they're kind of authentic because they, they were made in the same way, they were made by the same people and, and so on. But actually the quantity of them is a distortion in itself because there can't have been that many produced because almost by law they shouldn't have been produced. And all of a sudden, with the coming of colonisation, a lot of these things were available. 
but commoners were not allowed to wear them so how can that be it's a really really insightful and interesting link into you know just a shift a shift in a historical context and yes. what that brings about yes. at that point of yes. time for these objects that seem to be yeah. emerging far too frequently. So what I'm finding is, okay, so if you go to, uh, say, the V&A or go to the ACM, the Asian Civilizations Museum in Singapore, and have a look at what they've got, yeah, the items are Malay, but is this the totality of Malay silver? It's not representing no, everything that was no. part of that what it material is, landscape. It's a snapshot of what was available when some colonial administrator or museum creator decided, oh gosh, we better start collecting this stuff. So they'd go out, you know, in that year, literally in that year, and buy what they could find. So what it is, is it's, it's simply a snapshot of what you could buy in the markets in 1908, and, and not much beyond that. And, uh, but the idea that that's the totality of all of Malay, gold and silver, it just isn't correct. And that's what I'm finding more and more. And a lot of it's not plausible. When you read accounts of, of say, uh, like a Malay circumcision ceremony for a prince or a, uh, a wedding, uh, for example, very often they talk about there were, there were candlesticks. Uh, you know, no one has ever seen a Malay candlestick, uh, not, not a silver one, and yet there are written accounts that these things existed. But they were there. Yeah. I've actually managed to find a set which I, I think probably is one of these things, which we will publish in the book. But so this is the sort of... Thing that, uh, that I'm looking into. So the research sounds incredibly in-depth mm. and it must have been taking lots and lots of time out of your spare time as you referred to it but the discipline of actually writing ah. that's you know I think it's a really difficult thing yes. to arrange a busy life anyway mm. around writing so how do you manage to do this? How do you find the space and, and also the mental clarity around all the other things you do to be focusing on these yeah. very intricate details? Uh, there's one answer. You've got to be ruthless. Uh, you've got to be absolutely ruthless. Uh, you know, I'm not sitting down writing a book of poetry under a palm tree. This is something which uh, requires a, a huge amount of research, a lot of checking, a lot of precision, and, and a lot of thought. I mean, I've written books all my life, and, and so I'm quite used to it, but it's quite a lonely task, and, um, but you've got to be very determined. If you're at home writing in your study, you've got to, you know, you, you're basically there to work. You're not there to suddenly think, oh, I think I need to hoover or vacuum the, you know, the living room or something. Um, or watch daytime TV. You've got to be utterly, utterly ruthless with yourself and with other people. And if other people are trying to, you know, to give you unnecessary phone calls or, or to disturb you, you've got to cut them out. Um, because there's only one way to, to write a book, and, and that's to write it. And very often people will say to me, oh gosh, you've written books, yes, I'd like to write a book. How do you do it? And my answer is always the same, you write it. There's no shortcut way. It, it's a slog. Dedication, it's a dedicated, slog. lonely slog. And, um, and and for me, the research is the thrill. I love that. But um, I, I like the process of, of when you get all of your research down done, and you get it down, and and then you start to chisel away, chisel away, and shape it, and whatever. And I always think it's like it's like having a block of marble, which starts out you know really rough, and then you start tapping, 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 tapping. And eventually you end up with a sculpture so beautiful and so magnificent, you think, my God, I can't believe I did that. And, and, so that, and so that's what it's like. I think that's the analogy where you start with a whole lot of rough words 
and then you just have to keep editing, 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 and then you end up with something so magnificent that you scarcely recognise it. Moment of pride as you can actually step back oh. and take a deep breath and exhale and come out of the cupboard that you've been shut in writing for the last yes, six months. Yes, it's pride and um, relief and, uh, and it's a relief for everyone including the publisher who wonders why the book was a year late. And <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like it has become very involved since the um, first instances yeah. of what you perceived you may be writing well, about. Well this, this one has and I'm really pleased actually because um, I started out to write a book of just you know nice pictures and captions and here's a bit of story about this object and whatever and it's actually turned into a complete journey of the Malay people their religion their food their cultures all of this sort of stuff and um, and along the way I feel like I'm I'm coming across many discoveries and and um, and you know thank God actually because it's you need something to sustain you in this whole process so it's that that sort of passion and the enthusiasm and the sense of discovering that maybe this I'm finding out things that no one else has really thought of before so this is really I, I love it it's a great process and a book of that type can open up a hundred different minute research routes for other people yes. to then take in other directions and yes. discover really important things which enable people as observers to look differently at the intricate details of just human interactions with one another, whether it's all from the same culture and place or people who arrive and go and how those things change through mm, times of history. Mm. Yeah, the last major book on Malay gold and silver was written by uh, a man called Henry Ling Roth, uh, who was British or English. And <clears throat> that, that was published uh, over a hundred years ago. And there wasn't much content on it. There were a lot of black and white photos of, of private people's collections and, and so on. But again, it has this problem. It was a snapshot of what was available at that time around 1910. And I will contend that even in that book, you've got this problem, this distortion of this is what people could newly buy then. It isn't what the Malays were making, say, 100 years ago. So again, people have made the mistake of thinking this is the totality of Malay gold and silver, which it isn't. Um, and even then, I'm not even sure that Henry Lingroth even went to Malaysia. It's not clear. He, he went to Australia. Uh, he might have gone to the Malay Peninsula on the way back to England, but that's not clear. And, I, and, and uh, when he wrote his book, he, he wrote it in England. Uh, and he was an honorary curator at a, at a mu local museum. So, and uh, were the collections that he was referring to in Australia or in Malaysia no, or in no, the UK? No, no, they're in the UK and they'd been uh, mostly put together by uh, colonial administrators in Malay, in the Malay Peninsula and uh, they'd, they'd brought them back here. And he'd had a, a small exhibition of these sorts of items, which he borrowed, and then produced a catalogue. And it was a fantastic uh, work at that time, but again, it, it's distorted because it, it was a survey of what you could get your and hands his on. his information is coming from what the yeah. colonial buyers recorded uh, at the time that they purchased it? Yes, yeah, not not so much bias, I suppose, but, but just more what, it, it, his, his, uh, he was informed by the collectors, so if they said they bought something in Perak, for example, in, in Malaya, he would record the item as having come from Perak. Uh, he didn't go into the field, as far as I know, and do the research himself. So it was very much secondhand, and he, he was quite removed from the, the process. It's also uh, distorted in, in that um, it's focused only on the, the, Malay, the Malay Peninsula and not on the Malay, say, of, 
of Borneo or southern Thailand or, or particularly Sumatra. And did he have um, particular knowledge in his field of work about the region and about the customs and about the, the politics and the trade of in the area yes. previously? Is it an area he was an expert in before he put together the collection? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, yeah, he, he does seem knowledgeable. He, he is starting from a, a reasonable basis. But, but again, uh, a lot of the book is, is black and white photos with captions and, and with, with an introduction, and the introduction is quite good. But the problem is that this introduction has been repeated over and over and over as, as research. It's almost as if uh, subsequent researchers in the area have gone back to this book and taken everything that he has written as absolute gospel simply it's because it's now old. Yeah. And they haven't questioned any of it themselves. And or so what his sources were. Yeah, he was accurate to yeah. his sources, but how broad yeah. were they? Yeah, and uh, they haven't done a, like a plausibility check on some of it. And, and in fact, even, like, I mean, like any museum catalogue these days, practically, uh, you know, he has things in it which he says are items which he, he says are Malay, but in fact, they're, they're not. They're obviously Thai, and we know that now. But, but at um, the time, they were yeah, just pushed well, into that. It wasn't so clear. Yeah, yeah. It sounds as if um, this book on this topic is um, way overdue, if nothing has been done on this <laughs> well, my level for so, yes. 100 years. <laughs> I meant the information rather than the deadline. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so talking of um, your publisher's expectations and deadlines, when do you think it would be possible for us to have this book in our hands and be looking at the things that mm. you've researched and written, Michael? Um, it, I, I imagine it'll be next year, um, particularly with all that's been going on this year. But that's actually quite okay because it's given me the time and the space to, to really think about these issues and to probably go... I mean, I'm producing a, a bigger book and a more complicated and complex book than I ever anticipated. And I think... Um, I'm, I'm being led by the research in, in some respects. I, I, um, I don't know what routes I'm going to be led down by what I find, and I keep finding more and more stuff that I didn't expect to. And then I think, I feel almost like morally obliged. Oh, gosh, I've found this out. I, I, I have to keep going down this path. And then I find out something else, and I think I must go down that path because no one has pulled all of this together before, as far as I know. And, um, and I feel that, well, uh, I... You know, I have the knowledge in the area and the interest, so um, it's sort of important that I do this. And it's gratifying to fully explore these things, to see where the edges of discovery can take you. Uh, completely. I mean, it, it's because, you know, with this year being difficult with COVID and so on, this is actually a fantastic year for research because a lot of people I know um, are able to sort of settle down and, and really focus on something that they haven't had the chance to do uh, to this extent for years, and I'm certainly the same way. We, you know, with a gallery, we, we produce a monthly catalogue and, and that is like a month after month after month after month. But in between times, because we're not having visitors to the gallery and so on, it's giving me a lot more breathing space to concentrate on this other project. To really focus on mm. taking these researches to as far as you can possibly, step by step, find connections to take them. Yeah. Fantastic. I think that volume two will be in the offing if you carry on researching, Michael. Be careful. <laughs> oh no, let's, let's just concentrate on the first one, <laughs> please. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing such open and um, candid insights into your research and really look forward to seeing the book. Do you have a working title? or? Uh, actually, no. No, I don't. Actually, I haven't Next even thought step. of that. No. <laughs> and actually, strangely, it hasn't even occurred to me to think about a title. Oh, trust um, me to get to the tricky question. I know. No, I do. Goodness. <laughs> uh, now, that's, that could be the hardest thing to, to do with the yeah. whole project. 
let you go away and think about that one. You okay. can let us do know in due course which title we should all be looking for in our local bookstores. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Michael. You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.